This is David Weiss for the Daily Worker Placement, and you're listening to The Game Changers, Episode 6, Farmville, Part 1. We've now reached the middle of the first decade of the 21st century, which I'm going to call the 2000s, because calling it the aughts or the aughties just sounds wrong. So let's take stock of where we are. By 2005, Magic the Gathering, the first collectible card game, had become a worldwide phenomenon and an an acknowledged classic, and Tabletop had become self-aware enough to establish a canon of sorts. Settlers of Catan was the gateway game through which newcomers tended to enter the hobby, but the recently released Ticket to Ride was already gating on it. There was a pantheon of heavier games like El Grande, Amon Rey, Dimacher, Puerto Rico, and so on, which you graduated to once you finished with the basics. And while most of the famous designers were German, tabletoppers had already started migrating away from the term German games because designers like Alan R. Moon and Martin Wallace, among others, had proven that Auslanders could also design the heck out of a game. The speed with which this self-awareness came about was, of course, due to the communications revolution of the internet. And our next game changer was unintentionally well-positioned to take maximum advantage of the many forces, both good and bad, that the internet gave power to. But to explain this, we need to provide some context. In the 1990s, both computer memory and bandwidth were extremely limited by today's standards, which meant that it took too long to upload or download pictures, let alone music or video. There was a mini-boom in ASCII-rendered artwork. Google it. You'll be amazed. But aside from that, the net was essentially text-only until late in the 1990s. The dominant method for group communication was Usenet. Think of it like Reddit, but with way less functionality. Usenet is still around, actually. It's now run by Google, which hardly even existed when Usenet was at its height. Alas, Usenet today seems to be filled mainly with spam and bots, but back in the day, Usenet was like a huge 24-7 free-for-all convention subdivided into smaller and smaller committees. So you had net.sports.hoops for basketball fans, alt.fan.douglasadams for devotees of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and where Adams himself occasionally posted, and rec.games.board for tabletoppers. At rec.games.board, people traded and argued about strategy, posted reviews and session reports, and generally reveled in the realization that there were other people out there who were into what was still then called German games. One of these new fans was a young Texan named Scott Alden. Alden was, and is, a computer engineer who started his career in video game design, first in Silicon Valley and then in Dallas. He and his local gaming group were also into a tabletop skirmish game set in a fantasy universe called Warhammer. Then, in the late 90s, Alden, along with so many others, discovered Settlers of Catan and became a convert to German games. He began to comb through Usenet groups, especially rec.games.board. 
he was pleasantly surprised to find other Dallasites, or Dalatians, or Dallasonians, posting reviews and session reports, particularly a fella named Dirk Salko, who ran a Dallas German games group. Alden contacted Salko and asked if he could join. Salko's response was wary. Uh, I have to meet you first. Ultimately, though, he accepted the noob into his group and thereby exposed Alden to a treasure trove of games and discussions about games scattered around what was then still usually called the World Wide Web. Alden soon became passionate about collecting all this data in one place so that it was easily accessible to everyone. He'd already launched a website for video gaming, 3dgamegeek.com, which compiled video games into a database, which could be searched with specialized software. Now he proposed to Solko that the two of them team up to do the same for board games. Solko had already been working on a categorization and rating scheme for board games, so he was keen to join in. The result of this partnership was Board Game Geek. It began with less than 700 users in 1999, and by the end of 2005, it had over 70,000. By that point, Alden had quit his job to run BGG full-time. Luckily for Alden and Salko, by the turn of the millennium, more and more people were online and owned faster computers and internet connections, which meant they could incorporate better graphics and allow users to share photos and videos, as well as text. BGG soon succeeded Avalon Hills The General and Rec.Games.Board as the central clearinghouse for tabletop reviews, information, gossip, trollery, and general goofiness, and so it continues today. By the end of 2019, Board Game Geek had 2 million users. Now, I was a relatively early adopter, joining BGG in April 2004. Before then, my main source of information about games was Games Magazine, which you might remember is where I first read about the Settlers of Catan. I also used a website devoted to war games called grognard.com, which still exists and keeps up to date, but its graphics look like they're stuck somewhere around 2004. After I joined BGG, my visits to grognard.com and purchases of Games Magazine became rarer and rarer. More and more wargame material migrated to BGG, rendering grognard.com superfluous, in my mind anyway, and there was no way a bi-monthly magazine like Games could keep up with the flow of new releases, besides which it only reviewed about four or five every issue. On top of that, the board game reviewer for Games at this time, a guy named John J. McCallion, was useless. His reviews, and I use the term lightly, were mainly just summarizing the rules, information I could find on the internet anyway, instead of trying to convey any sense of the context of the game or what it was to actually play it or why I would like it. Now, two online reviewers whose reviews I did start to pay attention to more and more around this time were Scott Nicholson and Tom Vassell. I tended to agree more with Nicholson than Vassal, but both of them did more than just cover the rules. Nicholson ended up moving away from reviewing and moving to Canada, and is currently running a tabletop design program at Laurier University. Vassal went on to found the Dice Tower, 
which is now arguably the biggest and most influential tabletop review site in the world. In the early days, Nicholson and Vassal's reviews were text only, but the launch of YouTube on April 23, 2005, led to an explosion of video creation and sharing, obviously not just in tabletop, but in all cultural endeavors. On camera, Nicholson was more soft-spoken, Vassal a little more brash, but both had pretty good senses of humor which played well to the camera. Their influence and fame within the tabletop world spread, but it would be a few more years before celebrities from the outside world decided it was safe to get their geek on and get into the act. So to sum up, by the middle of the 2000s, tabletop culture, although not yet mainstream, was reaching a critical mass, catalyzed by the internet, particularly Board Game Geek. Tabletop fans were now strongly interconnected around the world, meaning that, for better or for worse, buzz about upcoming games spread faster and more intensely than ever before. Designers and publishers had yet to take full advantage of this, mind you, but you can be sure that this was to come. Meanwhile, in Dortmund, Germany, Uwe Rosenberg was working on a new game. Rosenberg had grown up playing and loving Francis Tresham's games 1830 and Civilization, both of which I talked about last episode. And, as a grad student in the mathematics of probability, his favorite game was Lovenhertz by Klaus Teuber, the designer of Catan. While he was still a student, Rosenberg, like Rainer Knizia before him, designed several play-by-mail games. But his passion for probability, plus a belief that gamers would eventually look beyond Magic the Gathering, led him to focus on designing card games. He designed 50 in three and a half years. One, in particular, had some unique mechanics, and its theme, of all things, was the harvesting and trading of different kinds of beans. The word for bean in German is bohn, and Bonanza, released in 1997, became a very successful title, winning a couple of awards and being recommended by the Spiel des Jahres committee, which was not as good as winning an award or being nominated, but still was enough to raise its profile. In the years following Bonanza's success, Rosenberg had some other designs published, all card games, but none did as well as Bonanza. In 2000, he founded his own company, Lookout Games, with two other designers, Hanno Gurke, who had worked with him on some Bonanza expansions, and Marcel-André Mirkel, whose pioneering games Verreiter, which means traitor, and Meuterer, mutineer, are now mainly forgotten, unfortunately, although they were quite influential in their time. Lookout had some success in 2003 with a party game designed by Miracle called Attribute, which we will talk about more in episode 9, but Rosenberg was still unsure about whether he should stick to working as a statistician or trying to make a real go of it designing board games. Then, in 2005, Kalis came out. Designed by Frenchman William Attia, Kalis was set in the late 13th century, with players competing for the favor of the king through various means, all involving turning money, or cubes of resources, into points. Kalis immediately took the tabletop world by storm, sweeping up many Game of the Year awards, including the Spiel des Jahres for Best Complex Game. Kalis felt fresh because it handled what players did on their turns in a relatively new way. Normally, 
when it was your turn, you had a set list of things to do, or could do, in a particular order. Snakes and Ladders, Monopoly, and Catan are very different games, but they all have one thing in common. You start your turn by rolling the dice. Of course, they go in very different directions after that, but even then, your turn follows a script. Roll, then move, then do what it says on the square you land on. Roll, then generate resources, then trade and buy things. Starting in the late 1990s, some designers wanted to shake up this scripted approach. For instance, Wolfgang Kramer and Michael Kiesling had their trilogy of mask games, Java, Tikal, and Mexica, so-called because each had a picture of a mask on the box. Uh, they popularized an approach which may have been borrowed from tactical miniatures games, which was to provide a menu of available actions, each costing variable amounts of action points and then gave players a set number of action points to spend on their turn in any order they chose, usually. The action point system provided for some very deep and involved gameplay, and was very popular, except for the fact that it seemed to bring out a lot of what we call analysis paralysis, when the number and variety of choices accumulate to the point where turns begin to take a very long time, especially for very competitive or anxious players. So with Kalis, Atia took a different approach. First, instead of a menu of actions, which usually meant going back and forth from looking at the board to looking at some player aid card in your hand, why not put the actions on the board itself? Why not have actions on tiles in the form of buildings, which players could then build and place on the board? And instead of virtual action points, which were hard to keep track of during a turn, why not have players place tokens on those buildings to take actions? And why not call those tokens workers? And so was born the term worker placement. And although Kalis was not the first game to ever use worker placement, that privilege, according to Board Game Geek, belongs to a 1977 SPI game set in a post-apocalyptic America called After the Holocaust. Kalis was the game that popularized worker placement, and through its influence on Uwe Rosenberg led directly to our fifth game changer. Rosenberg was so obsessed with Kalis, he played it every night for two weeks after buying it. His one criticism of the game was that the number of workers players had available did not change over the course of the game. Although I will say here that since it cost money to place workers in Kalis, you didn't always end up always using all of your workers every turn. Anyway. Rosenberg started thinking about a theme which would justify starting with just a couple of workers at the beginning of the game and then increasing that number as the game went on. Agriculture seemed to fit the bill here. Rosenberg remembered the old Abakerspiel game Dicke Kartoffeln, where players planted potatoes and battled weather, pests, and market fluctuations in a race to make the most money. Sure, there were lots of games about knights and traders, but farmers, not so much. It was a pretty unused theme. Rosenberg also liked the harvesting mechanic used in Antiquity, a huge brain melter of a game published by Splotter Games, who specialize in such brain melty games. Rosenberg also wanted his farmers to have the option to raise livestock. 
This in turn required fence and stable building, and here Rosenberg poached from his beloved Lovenhertz for the fence building mechanism. This in turn required wood as a resource. And hey, didn't the farmers have to live somewhere? That would require clay and stone resources. And so Rosenberg's farming simulation took shape. He called it Robinsonade, with the idea that each player was Robinson Crusoe on their own lonely island with just themselves and Friday providing the first two workers. Soon, though, he had added market mechanisms which didn't work thematically if the players were castaways, and historically, Rosenberg knew that it was often the case that farms were started by young couples who, over time, made babies that grew up and worked with them. So he abandoned the Robinson Crusoe theme in favor of a mom-and-pop farm operation. Rosenberg and illustrator Clemens Franz even visited farm museums in Germany and Austria, hoping to get ideas and inspiration, not to mention rough drawings for the more than 300 occupation and improvement cards that would end up being included in the game. Over time, Rosenberg added other ingredients into the mix. Occupations, item and building crafting, anticipating Minecraft by several years, I want to point out, home renovation from wood to clay to stone, and above all, the requirement that players produce enough food to feed their farm families. At first, there were quite a few take-that elements in the game, but as the game got more and more involved, Rosenberg pulled back on those, feeling that the more complex a game was, the less players should be able to mess with each other's plans. In the final version of the game, the only direct player interaction was through the worker placement because each action could only accommodate one worker. So, for example, once you grab the sow fields and plant action, no one, including yourself, would be able to do that action for the rest of the round. This, in turn, made turn order very important. So Rosenberg made the crucial decision to make an action out of becoming the new start player. After over 200 playtest sessions using a pool of 130 playtesters from December 2005 to the summer of 2007, Rosenberg decided his game was ready. Starting with two workers and a 3x5 square grid empty, except for two tiles representing a two-room wooden shack, players had 14 rounds to grow and develop their homestead. On round one, 10 actions were available, and every round, a new action joined the list somewhat randomly. Every few rounds, there was a pause while players harvested crops, bred their livestock, and fed their families, or went begging if they couldn't. Players scored points at the end of the game for their resources, livestock, occupations, farm improvements, and the size and quality of their house. They also lost points for having to go begging, or resources they lacked, or land they had not developed. Rosenberg came very close to calling the game the Black Swan, after the Swan River Colony, a group of British colonists who settled in Western Australia, bringing with them nothing but their knowledge of farm technology. That would have been an almost perfect thematic fit. But for some reason, Rosenberg hesitated, and then decided to put the matter up to a vote in an online poll. We all know how dangerous that is. What if the winner had been something like Gaming McGameface? Luckily, instead, the winner of the poll was the Latin word for farmer. And so was born Agricola, our next game changer. 
Agricola was a big departure for Rosenberg, and a big risk. Not only was it much more complex than his previous games, thus risking the alienation of his core audience, it was also much more expensive to produce, with hundreds of wooden pieces for workers, resources, animals, fences, and stables. And then, let's face it, there's the game's name. In general, when you're pitching a game, you don't want to spend energy explaining it or defending the name, especially a game as complicated as Agricola, but Agricola as a title is misleading. At the time, every game with a Latin name in Board Game Geek's database was either set, naturally, during Roman times, or it was an abstract with no theme whatsoever, whose designers were probably looking for a name which would add gravitas to their title. But Agricola was set, supposedly, in 17th century Germany. That's confusing. Then there was the issue of the pronunciation of the title. Rosenberg himself says there was a lot of people mispronouncing it Agricola, like it was a soft drink, instead of the proper Latin Agricola, to rhyme with Ricola. He claims that illustrator Andrea Bokoff came up with the idea of making the first and last A of the title on the box larger than the other letters, as a kind of subconscious pronunciation cue, and that this totally solved the problem. From my own experience, though, while that may have worked in Europe, A, I didn't even notice it until I read that explanation, and B, plenty of my gaming group clearly didn't catch the hint because about half of them used the soft drink pronunciation anyway. That's a lot of time to spend on just the title, but my point is that Rosenberg's choice of Agricola for the title of his game says a lot about his confidence in the game, or maybe just his lack of marketing savvy. Imagine having to clarify the theme and pronunciation of your game's title over and over again before even starting to explain the rules. And so, with his reputation and career on the line, in October of 2007, Rosenberg and Lookout partner Hanno Gerke arrived at the Essen Game Fair with 1,000 copies of Agricola. We'll see what happened at Essen, and after that, in part two. That was part one of episode six of The Game Changers. I'm David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And don't flip that table. <laughs>